You're listening to Bethany Radio. More content is available on iTunes or online at BethanyBibleLeroy.com. Well, good morning. I invite you to take your scriptures. Hopefully you've got a copy of God's Word with you. Turn again, again, to Romans 8. We are still there. Romans 8, a couple verses to cover today. And uh, I'll read from verse 28. On your way there, I had such a great turnout last week. I don't normally, normally I just pick a picture. But I just, I mentioned broccoli and they just came in. And uh, I'm thinking I should just mention broccoli again, but I won't. But uh, I wanted to show you some of the pictures that the kids drew last week, just because I'm so thankful for each of them. But of course, Malachi helps us here where we were at in verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good, uh, those who uh, work yeah, together for the good, there we go, I've got to read, of those who love him. So appreciate that, Malachi. And there's more. These are what came in. We can go to the next one. This says broccoli. And Adam, thank you, Adam, for, I don't know if he's here today. I don't know. Uh, but Adam, if you're watching, whatever, the yuck, he got the yuck of the broccoli. God uses, yes, all things for good, even broccoli. And I uh, appreciate that. We can go to the next one. It's from Otto, who just said, you said, <laughs> broccoli will be in the sermon. Lettuce gross. Thank you, Otto. That's great. <laughs> okay. I love it. Whatever. Peter's getting excited about that one. Uh, keep go- Micah, okay. You hate broccoli and lettuce unless you drown it in butter and salt. Okay, so we all learned how to eat broccoli with butter and salt, and, uh, but you caught on to the idea there as well. That some things that just don't look so good to us are indeed good. Of course, Weston captured all of us here sitting, and somebody there is not broccoli. I'm not sure I understand all that, but that's what we've got there. Thank you, Weston, for that. And one more, Oliver. You know, we talked about uh, this room. If we were in an Airbnb and looking over this room of Romans 8 and entering a certain room, look at this room we're in. And so appreciate that, Oliver, for drawing that. A room of Romans and a good room, good room to be in. So thank you. I think, did I have any more? I think that's it. Okay. All right. So thank you, kids. I won't mention broccoli again, probably, but appreciate you drawing your pictures and giving them to me. So we are at God's word. Let's read from his word. I'm going to start again in verse 28 because these are connected, but really our focus today then, as we have time, is verses 29 through 30. So Let's read God's Word. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray once again. Lord, as we come to your word, spiritual things are understood by spiritual minds, are understood by your spirit who gives us that understanding. And we just pray, Lord, we thank you for your presence among us in the going out of your word. Lord, help us to study it well, to think well today, and then that that thinking and that knowledge and understanding 
would cause us really today to glory in you, Lord, who have called us. Not because of anything in us so worthy to be called, but because of, of the worthiness of Christ and your pure grace in our lives. Help us as we study along, as we look through your word right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the text we are in, along with there are others like it, and we'll get to some of those, has historically caused some debate. Uh, some debate just, just in terms of just what does this mean of God's foreknowledge and then God's predestination. And so it's helpful. We've got a, kind of another week. I didn't want to cover all of this last week, but another week to kind of get in and think about this. And really the question here before us is kind of with these words, and then we'll see what follows, is does, one question might be, does God unconditionally choose from his eternal counsel those whom he will save? Or is salvation in the end really up to the individual, a decision or choice that they, they freely make? So there's, there's debate in this. It's interesting, just as I was thinking about this particular section and where it lands, and, and the verse that comes before, verse 28 I don't think there's too many controversies or divisions over verse 28. At least they don't seem as stark or pointed as you know, what we find in verse 28. Last, last week we saw this. Uh, Malachi helped us see this on the slide, that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And you just, I don't think you hear of great debates on this particular verse. I, I don't think I have. You know, great, uh, maybe someone would say, no, I, I disagree no, you're wrong. You know, all things do not work together for good. I disagree with, I think most, all of us, most would generally agree God sovereignly works together all things for good to those who love him. Many would say, hopefully all would say, I agree, God is certainly in control. When we look at a, a verse like that and we thank the Lord, thank you that you're working and we can trust in your sovereign rule over all things, we can trust this. So I think there's agreement in that sovereign rule of God. But then, for various reasons, when it comes to this realm of salvation, God's calling, God's sovereign ordaining is debated. And kind of goes back, how does he sovereignly choosing all these sorts of things? Why is this? I've, I put down two reasons here. One, I think, is a better reason than the other. One reason just deals with certain texts of Scripture. Why is there a debate? Because there's certain sides in the debate of God's choosing God's foreknowledge, his predestining, all these sorts of things. Certain sides will debate this scripture or that to kind of back up their interpretation. I'm going to do the same as we go through here today. So it's a debate over scripture. And let me just say that that's the best kind of debate. When we're saying, well, but this scripture says this, and how do we work that, and what does that mean? And, and it's back and forth with scripture. What we're really basing on, the, the foundation there, is what God has said. But another reason for some, kind of a, maybe a worse reason, it just might rest in the fact that we would rather just tell God what he must be like or what he must do rather than what the Scripture says. Some might even say, as we've, I think, seen in our videos, I, you know, I don't like to think of God this way or I don't believe God could do this or you just kind of fill in the blank with God. Uh, for others, man's Free will must, in the end, going to rule the day. It's very important. And God may graciously provide. Some would say he, he graciously provides. But ultimately, in an ultimate way, it's up to 
the individual uh, to call out to God. My goal today is not to flatten out those debates and say, well, let's just look here, let's not have the debate, let's throw, you know, I guess we just can't know. The goal here and the beauty of expository preaching is here we are. It's done, pick this scripture today, it just, it, we come along and here we're in these particular verses. And so our goal is to deal with this text. And we're going to look at other texts, but we're really trying to deal with this text and really these particular verse 29 and 30 that's before us. And so let's wrestle with this text. And the first really wrestling is just to look at the text overall. So we're coming out of verse 28. Paul's flow then, as we come out, he goes from one verbal idea to the next in this, these verses 29 and 30. And you, you see him there listed. There, there's nine verbals, nine verbs here in verses 29 through 30. And if you know, I've preached before, verbs, we get excited for verbs. So uh, to look at those. But every verbal that you see, he foreknew, he predestined, um, uh, he uh, predestined, he called, called, justified, glorified, those sorts of things. Every one, this won't mean much, but I'll explain it, is in the aorist, active, indicative, third person singular. You go, yes, they're in the aorist. You know, what, it, what in the world? L- let me just, just briefly, aorist means past tense, essentially, kind of simply. They're in the past tense. So these are all in the past tense. They're all active, meaning that the subject is performing or causing the verbal action. So he, and we see it provided for us there, that he foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified. Of course, that he is, we fill in with God. The indicative is, is what really is happening. It's, it's actual. It's not, this isn't a hope for, this is what is actually really happening. And then, of course, as I mentioned, they're in this third-person singular. So like first person, feel like you're back in the English class, is the I and the we. The singular first person is I, or plural is we. Second person is you, or the plural for our Texans is you all. It's both ways. And then the third person is he. It could be he, she, it, but here it's he. And here it's he, if you capitalize he's, that's the capital H here. He is for knowing, predestined, and so forth. Now, why go into the aorist, active, indicative, third-person third singular? It's as if, in a general sense, verses 29 through 30, they're just a big exclamation point on why we can trust, looking back to verse 28, that God is indeed working, all, working together for good all things. He's working suffering Good times, bad times, for those who have been called according to his purpose. And so verses 29 and 30, the answer, be assured, God foreknows, he predestined, he calls, he justifies, and glorifies. God is working for his own. And so we want to look at each of these, really really each of these verbals and a little more as we go along and see how they play out here. The first one is in verse 29, those whom he foreknew. And here we get one of the first questions. Well, who are those whom God has foreknown? And, and, and really, maybe deeper, just what is it that God knows? 
So in simplest terms, the word here, he foreknew, means to know beforehand. But again, the question is, what kind of knowledge, what does God know? What kind of knowing beforehand is covered here? Now, one common view, and this is where you're going to hear the debate here, one common view, there, I think there's others, it's not the only one, but it seems common, has been that God's foreknowledge here, and then it's, it's related to his predestining or his predestination, means that God looks ahead, you know, from eternity past, looks ahead to the free choices of mankind from eternity past. And, and some would say, well, it's, this is partly based on his grace, but he sees the belief of someone in the future. That's the knowing. And, and thus, knowing what they will believe, he thus predestines them for salvation. That's, that's one view, one, one definition of this view. And it's known as conditional election. So God elects, but it's conditioned on what he sees in the future that somebody, he sees that belief and, and then in the past uh, elects. That idea it goes like this, one view. For election to be conditional means that God's choice of those he will save has something to do with them. That part of his reason for choosing them was something about them. Concerning election unto salvation, the Bible teaches that God chooses for salvation those who believe in Jesus Christ and therefore become united to him, making election conditional on faith in Christ. So again, in time past, this view would see God sees the faith, the the foreknowing of the faith of an individual, and thus the next word, then he predestines them for salvation. In essence, man's faith really, in the end, is the determining factor in their salvation. The question here, though, is whether God's foreknowledge is based on, based on a future action of someone, kind of the, the believing, and then so he chooses them, or is it based, his foreknowledge is actually knowing someone, knowing a person themselves. Now, we're helped. There's a few other places but I think it's helpful just we're in Romans. So turn to Romans chapter 11. I want to look there at just a couple verses that help us because the word foreknew is there. And when Scripture can help us understand something where we're at, then that's great. And on your way to 11, you're going to pass by chapter 9. And so if this perks your interest and this top, we're going to be back here again at God's will and His will in all things and how that works. We'll see it later on as we get to 9. And I, Lord willing, we'll get there this year. So... Uh, but for now, we're in Romans. Just look at 11, verses 1 through 6, and see if they give us some help in terms of what it means for God to foreknow. In particular, you're going to see it in verse 2. So let me read, but read the, this verses 1 through 6 here. Just see, get an idea here. So Paul says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. And this is his appeal. Lord, they've killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So, too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. I have that underlined in my Bible here. 
But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. And so it's verse 2 here, really, that connects the foreknowledge of God, but not connecting it to a decision somebody would make in the future, but connecting it to the person themselves. Verse 4, it's God who's kept a remnant, a people, and they are, verse 5, helpfully chosen by grace. So with that, and coming back to our passage, with, with people in mind in terms of God's foreknowledge, just look at the references to those in your English Bible, what you have for those, and we see those all over the place. There are those who love God, there are those called, and so they are those who are foreknown. So yes, God knows all. He knows more than just people. He knows actions, all these sorts of things and what people will do. But it seems here foreknowledge has much more to do with with people. It's knowing whom he would choose. John Murray writes that foreknowledge, and, and I like this, he says it's virtually equivalent to whom he foreloved. Whom he, so those whom he foreknown, he foreloved them. We're going to see that in a minute in Ephesians, but hang on to that for now. So, yes, God knows all things in time. He knows actions and people. But at least here, and I think helped out by Romans 11, God's foreknowledge centers on him knowing actual people, he loving people, and then choosing to love people by, not by what he sees in them, but by his grace on them. And so, those whom he foreknew, come back to verse 29, he also predestined. And here we get another one of these words, the word predestined. It's got the idea of maybe other ways to think on it, deciding beforehand, uh, predetermining, another way to put it, to ordain beforehand. Again, the question, is this decision based upon what God sees in somebody down in the down the road, how can we understand even just, even there's just one, one word here, and we'll get to the purpose of this in a minute, but thankfully it's not the only place that Paul uses this word, and so let's go to the book of Ephesians chapter 1 and look at this. So come to Ephesians 1, Paul's, both letters by Paul, and I didn't look it up, I can't remember which one was written first or second, um, But I want to read Ephesians 1, and we're going to look at verses 3 through 14, really. And I think having looked at Romans now, having looked at some of these words we're looking at, I think you'll hear some similar things going on. And I love, again, when Scripture is the best commentary to Scripture. Paul, what do you mean? Foreknew, predestined, Ephesians 1 is helpful here. So let's look at verse 3, and I'll just read through verse 14. Uh, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Here's that chosen by grace type language. Here's the purpose, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Now we'll look at that when we get back to Romans. But then it says this interestingly, verse 5, in love... He predestined us. And I don't, you know, I don't think here it's the same word as foreknew, but you see how, how John Murray would get that idea of God's foreknowledge is God's foreloving. In love, not our foreseen love, His love, 
He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. And then that will is to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. Verse 11, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined. How? It's according to the purpose of Him who works all things. It's interesting. According to the counsel of His will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to, once again, you get the theme, to the praise of His, of His glory. So yes, here, there's this hearing of the Word of truth. There's believing in Christ. There's the sealing of the Spirit. But behind it all is God's sovereign choice, His plan, His purposes. And we don't see here they're based on our own merit because in our sin we have none. They're based on what others have called, and I like this phrase, God's sovereign Love. God's sovereign love to sinners. Now there's other places throughout the New Testament. And Milt, I think show the backside of Milt's notes even this morning show you some of these. There, you come across words like appointed or God's purpose, we saw here. Or the elect or the chosen or their names were written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. And so it's hard to come away with the scriptural account with any other explanation than God's specific choosing and appointment and election and therefore His predetermining beforehand, predestining of His own. Now, Leon Morris, he refers back to our text in Romans 8.29 and he writes this regarding predestination. He says this is an important, so that's why it's worth spending some time on. It's an important New Testament concept and one which some people find difficult because they are so sure that we have free wills. This is not the place to go into a discussion of the relative places of the two. He just says it must suffice to notice that the meaning of the word is plain. We must not allow ourselves to be sidetracked by modern notions of what is or is not possible for God. Paul is saying, and this is helpful, his last line here, Paul is saying that God is the author of, our, author of our salvation and that from beginning to end. To the praise of His glory. Alright, head back to Romans eight twenty nine. Now there's a little more to verse 29 than just those whom He foreknew and He predestined. And in fact, God's predestination has in fact, I think, less... Less to do with a destination, though we're assured of life in the presence of God through Christ forever, but less, less about a destination than a person. And you see that here in the last, last part of the verse. Those whom He predestined, 
to be to be what? What's the purpose? To be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. It's this conforming conformity to Christ to the glory of Christ as the firstborn among many brothers. We looked at this a little bit last week. Uh, Paul says elsewhere, he says in 2 Corinthians 3, regarding those who have turned to the Lord, he puts it like this. He says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. So there's this image transformation. There's this conforming to the image in verse 29. From one degree of glory to another. And Paul adds, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We've seen in Romans chapter 6, we've seen we've died with Christ, we live with Christ, we're thus we're united in Christ. And so if we're united to Him, we also ought to look like Him. Paul would say elsewhere, imitate me as I imitate Christ or words like that. So Leon Morris says, this is all part of God's predestination. He predestined us not only to be released from an unpleasant predicament, you know, out of hell, uh, the, the destruction, the eternal pain and weeping and gnashing of teeth for eternity, that God rescues us from that. But what is it? What, what, what else? And Morris adds this, not just that, but in order that we might become like his son. God's knowing us beforehand, His preordaining of our lives. It is not to be spent on our own good time, or now I can do whatever I want. Not to be spent on our own at all. It's purposeful. And the purpose here is the glory of not us, but the Son. That's, that's what we see really in the last phrase here, verse 29. That being conformed to the image of the Son is bringing glory to the Son in order that, as, as Paul puts it here, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And John Murray, again, it's helpful. helpful. He writes, the term firstborn reflects, because we might read this and go, I don't know what firstborn, many brothers, what? He says it reflects on the priority and supremacy of Christ. Back in verse 17 of chapter 8, we saw we share in Christ. We share, we're fellow heirs with Him, both in suffering and in glory. But here in this, Christ is, He is the firstborn. He's the exalted one. Colossians 1, verse 18 says this of Christ. He is the head of the body. What's that? That's the church. He's the head. He's the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead. Paul says there that in everything, He might be preeminent. So any glory we have, any conformity to the image of Christ is not for our glory, but it should reflect this preeminent glory of the Son. So in other words, God's His foreknowledge, His predestination, they're purposeful towards glory, the glory of Christ, the preeminent One. All right, well, let's head into verse 30. These, my descriptions here won't be as long, but verse 30, and we've got a couple other words and verbs that come up. Let me read the verse again. So Paul says, verse 30, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The idea of those whom God has called 
We already kind of looked at that last week in verse 28. And the question might be, why does Paul bring it up? He already talked about us. We were called according to uh, his purpose. Why bring it up here again in verse 30? And I, I think there's a slight difference in what Paul wants to show. In verse 28, Paul's linking the calling to those who he is working all things for good according to his purpose. It's the same people here, but here in verse 30, Paul links the called into this, this overarching, this grand theme and plan of God for our eventual glorification in Christ. It's been called, maybe you've heard of this before, the golden chain of salvation. From this to this to this, the golden, kind of these, these chain links of we get, we get a view of what salvation looks like. Now, an article from Ligonier Ministries describes this golden chain this way. They say that here, although this chain does not specifically mention everything that God does in redeeming us, and we don't, for instance, we don't find the word sanctification in this passage, it does tell us, and you're going to hear the echo, for, I think, from Leon Morris, that salvation is from start to finish a work of the Lord. He starts the work, he who began a good work, and he finishes it up without any help from us for his glory. So those foreknown, or you could say foreloved, are those predestined, are those called. And those called are called to faith. And that call is assured of the purpose for God who sends it. He's assured. When he calls, there's an answer. God is not hoping here that the call will be received, but He ensures it by the work of His Spirit that we will answer this call. Not, I'm calling and I hope they pick up and I hope this works. It's, it's a sure call. It's that effectual call we looked at last week. It has a result. God's, again, not wondering what will happen. Jesus says this, John 10, My sheep hear My voice and I know them and they follow Me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, you see the, the Trinity, we were talking about Trinity yesterday, I was talking somewhat about Trinity and salvation yesterday. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. God's calling is sure. And then those called are those whom God has justified. And at this point, we say, oh, we, we're familiar with this word. We've been through justification by faith in Romans. We've already seen this. Uh, chapters 3, chapter 4, uh, probably elsewhere. That those whom God loves are those predestined and those called are those here justified. Those declared righteous in the courtroom of God, as it were. Uh, Brandon mentioned, and we're congratulating sofas on on little girls and uh, named Sofa. And we were in the courtroom with them this, this week, and it just brought home, we were there for very good reasons. <laughs> it was a very wonderful reason, but even I, and I didn't even have to take the stand, I felt kind of this, this is a courtroom, and it's, it's serious. And the judge walks in, and, you know, he might be wearing a tie, but he's still got the black robe, and there, you feel this, this weight of the courtroom, and the, the weighty consequences of the judge who's going to rule this way or that. And, you, man, I don't want to mess up. And Peter did well, but I'm sure he wouldn't have thrown anything if Peter cried. You know, it was a great time. 
But there's this weight there. And let me just add, you should visit a courtroom for this purpose. It's really good to be there. Maybe you, you have a lot. I don't know. But uh, it's good. But taking that illustration, you come back, how much more fear would there be in the courtroom of God? Well, we've got to give an account for what chapter 3 of Romans has told us is our sin. We stand before the judge. And yet Jesus Christ, for the sake of all who would call on Him for salvation, He died on a cross in our place, taking on Himself the wrath we deserved. And so we get, what do we get? Undeserved righteousness to all who look to Christ by faith. It's God who justifies, and we are declared righteous by His grace. And so verse 34 that we'll look at in later weeks here asks, who is to condemn? The answer is really, there's no one. We have a Savior, our brother, the firstborn, Him who is preeminent. And so we have hope, and it's a righteous hope in Christ. Well, there's one last phrase, one last verb. Those whom God has foreknown are those whom he has predestined, are those whom he has called, are those whom he has justified, are those whom he has glorified. It's the end for what God has called us, our glorification. And again, that glory is tied up in the glory of the preeminent Son, Jesus Christ. And as we saw, Ephesians 1, for the purpose, for the praise of his glory. But it's kind of odd, this, this past tense of glorified here, and it might throw us. If we, th- we think of glorification in the future, and it is, so why is Paul, why is it in the past tense like it's, it's already happened? And you could say there's an already not yet. We're already, we're already being transformed in the image of, of, of Christ. So there's the already and not yet what we will be one day. But again, Leon Uh, Morris is really helpful. And you're going to hear of an aorist tense. He says, now you know. You're like, oh yeah, aorist. That's past tense. We knew that. He says the aorist tense here is unexpected. The the past tense of glorified. He says, some think the verb has been attracted into the tense of the other verbs in the sequence. Like all the other verbs were past tense and so it just kind of got pulled in. (laughs) It's kind of past tense. That's the idea there. Morris says, but it's more likely that it is used of set purpose to bring out the truth that our glorification, I think he means future, is certain. So certain is it that it can be spoken of as already accomplished. That's the God who calls us to save us. It's certain. Says it's the plan of God, and that means that it is as good as here. It is certain in the divine counsels, and to God there is neither before nor after. Let me close our time together briefly. In a way, these two verses that we've looked at, the curtains of God's plan of redemption here, they're, they're pulled back to reveal to us kind of this, this inner counsel of God. As we've seen, God is the one calling. He is the one foreknowing. I think in a relational sense, loving sense, He's predestining to conformity to Christ. He's justifying and He's glorifying. And so you catch the theme. It's He 
over and over. He's doing all these things, not us. And so I think it's going to lead verses 31 through 39, and you can read ahead. It's just the response. What has God has done? What has he done? Paul will say, it's the question. What then shall we say to these things? God has done it. I'm going to close with, it's a little extended quote, again, John Murray. I think it just, he's encapsulating what we've been studying in verses, really, I think even 28, 29, and 30. Let me read it as we close. He says, In extending encouragement and support to the people of God in their sufferings and adversities, groanings and infirmities, the Apostle has reached this triumphant conclusion. He has shown how the present pilgrimage of the people of God, I like his terms, talking about us, pilgrimage of God, it falls into its place in that, in that determinate and undefeatable plan of God that is bounded by two foci here, bounded by the sovereign love of God in his eternal counsel and glorification with Christ in the age to come. It says, it is when they apprehend by faith this panorama that stretches from the love of God before times eternal to the grand finale of the redemptive process that the sufferings of this present time are viewed in their true perspective and are seen to be but the circumstances of pilgrimage to and preconditions of a glory to be revealed so great in its weight that the tribulations are not worthy of comparison. Let's pray together. Father, though there be debate, and perhaps we call it contra- not controversy, but just back and forth in what you teach here, may we come away with the one who does these things for his own glory, and that is you. Lord, may you just help us to see places like this, really your entire scripture. We see it in the life of Joseph and we see it here. Your divine plan, working out your divine will for your divine purposes. And I pray, Lord, in the present tribulation, in present suffering, or maybe a time in between suffering where life seems pretty good at the moment, Lord, when those tribulations come, may we rest in the fact that our beginning And our end is assured by the one who has called us, our God alone. And you are powerful to make this happen, and you are true to your word. And we give you the praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Bethany Radio a production of Bethany Bible Church in Leroy, Minnesota.